Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to the October edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and this time we hear from British astronaut Tim Peake on space toilets and from the first woman in space on why not having a toothbrush was the least of her worries. But a toothbrush is nothing compared with the fact that the spacecraft was oriented to ascend and not to descend. That was a real mistake. (laughs) And more from Valentina Tereshkova later. We're joined in the studio by Yen Yao to talk about a new space film project and former space shuttle engineer, now editor of Spaceflight magazine, David Baker. We're going to talk to David about Soyuz, but we'll probably talk about other stuff as well. We will. Welcome to you both. Now, let's quickly go around the table as Yen is involved in film and get your favourite film about space or space-related film. Yen, what's yours? I saw The Martian over the weekend and I really, really enjoyed it, much more than I thought I was going to. So, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll suggest that. David? Well, I think it's 2001 because it seemed to integrate so many aspects of our philosophical view about where we've come from and where we're going and that just ticked all the right boxes for me. Quite dull, though, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Well, uh, where we're going can be um, and very often it's better to take the journey rather than arriving. I must admit, 2001, I I, uh, took all my brothers and younger brothers and sisters to see that and we all came out mesmerised but also completely mystified not having quite understood what went on in the film even though I thought I knew what had happened in the book so for me I'm going to choose the right stuff I loved that film oh it's got to be Apollo 13 best film ever made (laughs) well there are very few missions without a made in Britain stamp on them whether it's as part of the first mission to land on a comet or on Saturn's largest moon. Now, with the upcoming Principia mission, however, we'll have the first British-European Space Agency astronaut. Tim Peake is only weeks away now from launching with two crewmates, one from the US and one from Russia. He's going for a five-month stay on board the International Space Station, and it's the culmination of a lot of hard work from scientists, engineers and the astronauts themselves. Well, Tim took a break from training recently, and via a live link-up from NASA in Houston, he talked to journalists and schoolchildren in London to discuss how it was going, and I was there. 
I think the the training is in some ways it's it's quite similar to to military training. Obviously, you do people are selected from a variety variety of different backgrounds, but a number of astronauts have had uh, military service as well. It is quite rigorous, but it's also well-paced. It's a two-and-a-half-year process from being assigned to a mission to actually the launch date. And so it's not a, a sprint, it's more of a marathon. And I think in many respects that, that's true with uh, military training. You gain a lot of experience over a prolonged period of time. And uh, that experience is not just in the sort of hard skills of the engineering and the technical things you have to do, but it's also the soft skills of uh, working in a very international environment at least 50% of my training has been done in uh, Russia and uh, Japan and Canada, as well as here in Houston and, of course, in Germany at the European Astronaut Center. So we're working constantly in a multicultural environment, um, speaking different languages and having to, to learn those skills, as well as the, the spacewalking skills, the robotic skills and all the technical skills that we need to know to manage the space station. So it's been a very varied journey, but uh, hugely enjoyable. Uh, clearly now I'm, I've uh, well into my, my final six months before launch and we're really just focusing on the essentials of the Soyuz spacecraft, emergency training, latest updates to any scientific payloads that are going to be on the space station. Of course, when you go into space, you don't ever escape the Earth's gravity. Um, you go into microgravity, you just travel fast enough so that you're in permanent freefall. But what that gives us is this environment of microgravity. Now, everything has evolved on planet Earth for four billion years in a fairly stable uh, 1G environment with the Earth's gravity. So by escaping Earth's gravity, uh, we can actually identify and learn new things. Some of the experiments I'm really looking forward to on board the space station, for example, one in the European laboratory, Columbus, is the electromagnetic levitator which sounds fantastic, and what we're using is microgravity to be able to suspend uh, small balls of metal alloys and be able to investigate their supercooled properties and the cooling process. This will lead, uh, hopefully, to um, identifying new materials and properties of existing materials as well. That's something we just couldn't possibly do here on planet Earth. Also, uh, an exciting Japanese experiment is growing protein crystals. Now, if you try and grow protein crystals in Earth, you have sedimentation, you have convection, and they affect the quality of the protein crystal. Whereas in space, you can grow very large and very pure protein crystals that can help develop new drugs, new pharmaceutical drugs, and help to identify new vaccines as well. But for, for my mission, really, I'm, I'm hoping to do a wide range of different activities. Obviously, we have the science that's going on board the space station. But in our free time, in the evenings at the weekends, we can do education programs and outreach. For example, I'll be calling school children with uh, the ham radio and possibly the ham video as well, which is something quite new. I'll be running a number of different educational projects. We're taking rocket seeds up into space with us. I've got two Astro Pi computers up there which are being programmed by school children back here on Earth. So that's going to be really exciting to develop as the mission progresses. And also I'll be filming a number of scientific activities for the National Space Academy in conjunction with the UK Space Agency. So there'll be a huge amount that will be going on steadily throughout the mission. And really, I hope that will be the, the benchmark of this Principia mission is the educational activities that I'll be engaged in. If you're exhausted just by simply hearing about all the activities Tim will be doing and the training he's undergone, there is one essential thing that all astronauts must learn and that always proves popular during interviews. The most training we have about the toilet 
is not how to use it, but how to fix it. You know, it's been up there for 15 years now. There's one in the Russian segment and uh, one in the American segment. Thankfully, they're pretty identical, so they share common parts, but they do break quite a lot. So um, it might not seem like a very glamorous task for an astronaut, but we do spend an awful lot of time fixing the loo. In terms of using it, uh, it's really very straightforward. It just uh, uses air air suction and a big fan to keep everything flowing in the right direction. But uh, I'm sure that there is, uh, there's going to be a bit of a rush to the, uh, to the loo after six hours in the Soyuz spacecraft when we all dock and uh, get on board the space station. Tim Peake and his mission is currently scheduled for December. December the 15th is the launch date at the moment and I'll be in Germany doing the commentary for the European Space Agency on the launch. I'll also be meeting up with Tim in a couple of weeks time at ESA's Astronaut Training Centre in Cologne and we'll have more in the next Space Boffins podcast. Tim of course will be flying in a Soyuz to the International Space Station and David Baker has written a Haynes manual on the uh, Soviet and then, uh, I suppose, Russian uh, spacecraft. I have it here in front of me. Is this what Tim Peake uses? Then? Does he just look it up? You know, sort of, oh, I don't know. Well, every, what does that button do? Every look. step of the way, he couldn't possibly fly this vehicle without that. <laughs> now, what's extraordinary about the Soyuz, it was built around the same time as Apollo, so in the late 1960s. And yet, it's still the spacecraft. It's the only spacecraft you can get people in space. Well, it's really a remarkable story. And and it came home to me when reflecting on the fact that I first encountered Soyuz about 33 years ago in in the early 1980s. And I went to Zvezhnigorodok, Star City. Glad you said that. Uh, I nearly didn't. Um, And uh, was in the simulator there of the Soyuz spacecraft. And and as I was in there... Um, and Leonov and Shatalov were there hosting me at the centre. I mused over the fact that it was 20 years old then. So this is a spacecraft that has adapted into not only different generations of people carrier, but also as a cargo tanker. And across those two versions, getting on now for nearly 300 flights. We should perhaps talk about the first Soyuz, um, which flew, I think, in 1967. And that was a a Soviet tragedy in parallel almost with Apollo 1 and the Apollo 1 fire. So it was interesting that the Soviets were having the same sort of problems. Tell us about that that first mission. Well, I think there's been a lot of forensic analysis on exactly what happened on that spacecraft. And there have been cosmonauts who have said that spacecraft was not really ready to fly. And I think you can only stand in awe of the dedication and the commitment of the Russian space engineers in the Soviet system that drove them to do things beyond what they wanted to on a timeline that was paced by the Cold War. Yes, it happened in America as well. And that's why we lost the three Apollo crew members in the same year as Komarov was killed on the first human (coughs) spaceflight with Soyuz. But there were several technical issues. So what was the problem with the first with Soyuz 1, I suppose, as we, we call it now? Well, it was a problem with orientation, with the fact that essentially many of the systems had not been tested in the same way that we tested them in the United States. And one of the extraordinary disclosures that came with the first real encounter with Russian space hardware during the Apollo-Soyuz preparations in the early to mid-1970s, we realised that they had very, very little simulation equipment And the computerization was not as broad scale in its capability and scope. 
the onboard systems were electromechanical. And I was intensely indoctrinated in the Russian arts, for why that should be, by Russian engineers over several visits to Moscow and the Zhukovsky Military Academy, where many of these systems had been developed in the 50s, that they specifically did not trust the computerized technologies and that they had engineers that, in fact, were committed to the two strands and that many of the systems that were failing on that first Soyuz did so because the electromechanical engineers did not talk to what we would call now electronics engineers. And so there was a mismatch in a lot of those aspects that were vital for the safe operation. But there was attitude problems with regard to stabilisation and control, and there was a parachute deployment problem as well. That's the extraordinary thing, because Komarov got into orbit, he survived orbit, he had all sorts of problems in orbit, but then he tragically died on, on the way back down to Earth when the parachutes didn't deploy properly. Yes, it's really tragic that, in fact, when another three um, were lost a a few years later, four years later, in another Soyuz spacecraft going to one of their very early space stations, Salyut space stations, that, in fact, it's only been on re-entry that they have lost crew members. But uh, that was the case. It it was very, very sad indeed, obviously, because of the loss of life. But it, it, it was so so uh, awful because of the fact that he had prevailed and had managed to wrestle that through so many on-orbit problems. So over its lifetime, so let's it's almost 50 years old as a spacecraft, I mean, it's terrible that four cosmonauts lost their lives mm. in that, but that is all, mm. only four. It's remarkable. And, and it's 1971 since they had a fatality, and they've only had two fatalities in all of their missions. So... Um, on that basis of sustained use of space hardware, um, it's on a par with the shuttle because, in fact, in 135 missions, um, two were lost. um, And in slightly fewer than that Soyuz missions, two were lost. But those were very, very early. And the comparison breaks down when you realise that... uh, we were continuing to sustain risk in the shuttle program, while on Soyuz it had been worked through very effectively on successive modifications. We, we should say it has updated. I mean, they've no longer got electromechanical computers. And these beautiful. I mean, the, the computers in the early ones, it's beautiful. We've got, I've got the picture here. You have to buy the Haynes manual to see mm-hmm. this. Um, you've got some great pictures in here, actually. Um, I've got to show you the studio. Um, this is beautiful painted mechanical globe that was yes. their navigation system yes, yes. this clockwork system yes. now so now it is electronic it is it is computerized there are push buttons that light up when yes. you push them and yes. electronic displays yes. and things i always remember one russian engineer one evening late into the night vodka had come out of a bottom drawer and we were talking away about the difference between eastern systems and west and this is back in the days of Brezhnev uh, when it was a real Soviet system he said you have a saying in England if it ain't broke don't fix it (laughs) you do impressions as well very good Um, so the, the, the latest model, it's slightly bigger because it's got to accommodate Americans. But, I mean, is it still more or less the same as the, the original Soyuz from 1967? Yes, it is. Uh, the interior is larger because they've rescoped the engineering of the, uh, of the two modules, which are pressurised. Um, but certainly it has gone through many, many modifications and, and it is very much state-of-the-art technology and hugely reliable. But there have been many one-off 
derivatives potentially of Soyuz as well, both for the military as well as for unique unmanned operations like Zond and the lunar missions. I wanted to ask you actually about the uh, this military Soyuz. Mm. You crept that into the book. It's, <laughs> and obviously it was very secret, but they had this mm. sort of military variation mm. on it. Mm. Well, of course, the Vostok programme that had carried the first six cosmonauts into orbit that itself had been implicitly associated and directly by launch of spy satellites because instead of a cosmonaut, you carried a camera. Um, and so with Soyuz, why abandon that duality? Because there was not the demarcation between the so-called military and the so-called civilian space programs that we have in the West. And so the military versions were all the way from spy satellites to killer satellites. It's very James Bond, isn't it? It's well, this very was, James Bond. We called them killersats during. I mean, <laughs> I remember during the the early years there was uh, the lunar module was looked at intensively. Um, there were production orders for Apollo spacecraft to be used specifically by the military, uh, so this was not unusual. But the Russians actually had one up on on, on the American plans. They actually put a cannon in the nose of the spacecraft. What? A cannon, yes. <laughs> and they tested the recoil effect. Uh, great for a deorbit burn, I would have thought, because it would send you in entirely the opposite direction. But a recoilless cannon um, is about the state of the art for military 1960s. Wow. That was a real fear, though, wasn't it, in the 60s, that you would, you would put weapons in space, not just to target other spacecraft, which is what's being talked about yes. now, but you could yes. have a, a weapon orbiting the Earth and... You know, you, you fly yes, over the United yes. States and they, you effectively drop a bomb on the US. Yes. Before space arms control agreements came into force and before there was a universal rejection because simply the practical applications of military... The Russians really tweaked up the interest in the West in building anti-satellite systems uh, from their FOBS programme, Fractional Orbit Bombardment System, FOBS which was the NATO name for what they were doing, which is putting a launch vehicle or a rocket into an orbit which, or just into a suborbit, which will creep way below the radar, hug the atmosphere and then descend like a ballistic rocket going way out into space because an intercontinental missile will go 400 kilometres out and be very detectable by, by defensive radar systems. So they were developing this. And so the Americans decided they'd have an all-out effort on developing a system that could shoot these things down. So a rapid response. So space warfare really did not begin with Reagan. It began a generation earlier. This is all fascinating stuff. You will have to get the book to uh, find out more about this stuff. And the pictures. I think you've got some stunning pictures in. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, David. Uh, still to come on the Space Boffins podcast, science and sci-fi and Valentina Tereshkova. You can reach Space Boffins on Facebook and Twitter and enjoy our back catalogue on the Naked Scientists website. Um, we have a shocking revelation now. Neither Space Boffin has yet seen The Martian. As you'll doubtless know, The Martian is the story of an astronaut accidentally abandoned on Mars and his struggle to survive. Like other recent sci-fi films, such as Interstellar and Gravity, the film claims to be rooted in science. So is that important in space science fiction? Let's bring in our next guest, Yen Yao, who's talent development manager at Interfilm and is project managing a project called Into Space. So tell us about Into Space. We're running a national filmmaking competition being funded by the UK Space Agency, tying into the Tim Peake mission to the International Space Station, where we want to encourage any young person aged 5 to 19 across the UK 
to consider entering a film on the theme of space and exploration. Uh, you say a film, we're not talking feature film no, here, no? Sh- no, no, short film, only up to three minutes because <laughs> we have to upload, this is all getting really, really fascinating for us, uh, we have to upload the files, basically, the films, um, up to the International Space Station. So we're going to be sending them over to ESA. And uh, basically, yes, we're going to be um, shortlisting Six films, so we have three age categories and uh, two films will be selected from each age category and if you're lucky, your film will be literally seen in space, watched in space by Tim Peake. Now they can do anything, these these uh, children. They could make their own set, they could set it in space, they could set it on a different planet maybe or the, is it just anything space related? Um, we want them to be the authors of their stories basically. So we're saying, you know, how do you interpret space and exploration? Um, you know, if we think about um, the UK great in terms of the numbers of explorers that we've had going to the top of Everest or going to the North Pole, you know, discovering new continents. You know, young people could be like, taking that theme whichever way they want. You are only limited by your imagination. And so. is this purely a, an educational sort of artistic project? No, well, you know, we were, we're working with the UK Space Agency in terms of um, just promoting the, the STEM agenda. You know, we, we as we all know, there is a big um, need to get more young people recruited and made aware of the great opportunities and jobs and careers that are available that are dependent on STEM and I was also so STEAM we now add the A for art into that mix to really you know make us and help you know retain that great edge in terms of technology making things inventing things imagining being on the moon etc and I think that's important because you know through through filmmaking through that exploration and through that creativity we can help them imagine things that you know can then become reality. Do you know I think that's one of the most inspiring things I've heard because it was always said by those in the business we went to the moon not because of our technology but because of our imagination. And you've just said it for the first time since the Apollo days. I've never heard that quote by anybody else. I think that's wonderful. I love this idea of steam. And I think, I mean, this is a rich theme for you, David, isn't it? I mean, you're yeah. from the British Interplanetary Society. Yes. And this has always been a rich theme of science and sci-fi, but sitting together, creativity and engineering and science sitting together, not separate. Go back a couple of centuries and science and art were integrated in natural philosophy. The very name of Tim Peake's mission empowers that duality of creative thinking along defined and logical lines. So this is this Principia, which I have, I struggle with. Yeah. I do I struggle with. Think everybody does. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, Yen, uh, space mm-hmm. and film—they do lend themselves to each other, don't they? I mean, there's this rich seam here. Absolutely. And you know, the way that young people can pick up technology. So we will be imagining that there'll be some lovely computer-generated animation. Um, there'll be some young people probably doing some visual effects. You know, we can see that in the big films, but also you can do it very simply on um, free software that you can download now. There's more of that sort of information on our website. And again, you know, we can do things quite simply. I don't think that you need to go full full tilt and think we're looking for, you know, the next mini Martian or the next <laughs> mini 2001. Not at all. I think it's about how you imagine that space, basically. What about the, the science? I, I can understand why people, you get interested in your imagination. But I, I always think it can be quite difficult to get the science in a sci-fi film because there are always the purists who will say oh that wasn't quite right or and if you're dealing with school children are you going to overlook it if they get the science wrong if they do put science in it 
Yes, because basically this is fiction. Uh, although I have to say that um, we we will welcome uh, films from any genre. So if anybody wants to make a documentary, obviously that's fantastic, and then therefore we will assume that you know what they're saying is is correct. But um, this is about imagination. This is about creativity. If they're doing a fiction film in the same way that if somebody was doing um, making a version of The Sunshine or whatever other great space-related films that have been out there. Um, you know, we're not expecting to be spot on. We would call it a documentary if that was the case. David, have you seen The Martian yet? Um, no. No, right, okay. So there's only, right, so it's all, all pressures on you, Yen. Is it important to we you? Are going to yeah. Yeah, we are going to see it tonight. I have to say, we are yeah. going to see it tonight. Um, is it impor- was it important to you, watching The Martian? We, ha- we have read the book, mm. um, that it was rooted in fact. And do you think that's important when it comes to space sci-fi? Um... I think, you know, when we go to watch films, it's about suspension of disbelief. We're going to see we're going to the cinema to be entertained. And obviously what technology and, you know, the great power of computers and the imagination and the technology enables us to do is to make things more realistic. And that's why, you know, a particular piece of work that I'm doing at the moment um, in the visual effects industry, we have a real shortage of STEM people, background STEM coming in. And we need people who stand strong on STEM and computer science so that they can actually help us recreate, you know, the phenomenon that we see on the real world. So that if there's a building collapsing, if we're going to see a zombie, if we're going to see a tidal wave, and it's actually CGI, computer generated, we need the people who can write the programmes, who know about fluid dynamics, who yeah. can actually make that look real. In fact, I've met um, the computer scientists who worked on gravity. A lot of them were British and actually worked on the effects that made gravity look Absolutely. so yes. convincingly, yeah. worryingly mm. real. Yeah. So, um, for instance, Interstellar, which won the um, you know the Oscar for visual effects, they're they're a British company based here in London. Gravity, Alfonso Cuarón's film, Framestore won the visual effects. You know, gra- um, Double Negative. They've got teams of um, you know scientists working with them in the background to make the things look real on the screen. So we're sucked into those worlds. I, I think it's important as well to realise that the film industry always traditionally and and I think. To its credit, has always sent out messages, whether it's anti war, whether it's anti race discrimination. And I think we've got a generation of filmmakers now that are like Ridley Scott. He gets very annoyed um, when people nitpick on specifics. He said, I don't want to make a film that is perfectly accurate as a factor. I want to inspire and send a message that humanity is about more than self destruction pillaging the earth of its resources and simply being self-serving. It is about a vision, imagination. And I think we have to get over this, this, this rather boring picking away while the science is important. And doesn't it actually, by there being things like this, stimulate conversation, which is what it should do? I must admit, I, one of the reasons I enjoyed the book was its narrative rather than, because there are long, what feel like long chapters sometimes that go into great detail about the engineering of it, to the point where you actually think, am I reading a, a textbook here? And then all of a sudden it gets back into people. And that's what makes it a page-turner, is that it reads like a thriller. I must say, I do like my sci-fi to be rooted in some fact. I, that's why I like The Martian as, as a book. I've not seen the film yet. Sorry. Um, And it's why I love Apollo 13. It's why I like the right stuff. 
It's why I like gravity, apart from the fact that it takes her a matter of seconds to change into spacesuits. That really bothered me. Why and should that bother you? Bothers- because otherwise you'd be watching for... Maybe you want to watch Sandra <laughs> get a kit off in the thing, you know. But, and the uh, underwear as well. Uh, well. I mean, they wear big nappies. That's always yeah. happened. In fact, um, that happened with Alien, didn't it? With Sigourney mm. Weaver suddenly has a, mm. a sort of nice pair of panties as she's mm. uh, getting in. Mm. Yeah, you, well, that's obligatory, isn't it? At least Sigourney Weaver managed to kick ass in other ways so that you didn't anyway (laughs) let's bring back to the point point my point was (laughs) that i do like a little bit of the nuts and bolts i do like it because what i loved about gravity was it i felt it get for the first time you got a sense space is really dangerous space is really hard and they are in free fall around the earth but sometimes that's more to do with the fact that you can know too much Mm. i think maybe maybe you david as an engineer when you see it it may be that if there is something that is engineering related that isn't right that actually might sort of tweak your buttons even though you say you're you know you're into the imagination i've had to morph myself into the real world that i'm discussing now here Mm. saying that i i like the merging of artistic creativity with science fact but i think my preference for 2001 as a film is that i remember when kubrick came to the marshall space flight center and he picked nasa's brains for the designs of what were then considered to be the next generation for the next century of space vehicles. And I had a tremendous respect for the way that that was rooted in NASA's aspirations into a story that, in fact, carried momentum on its own, not just as a nuts and bolts. So it could well be, Ian, that you will get the next Ridley Scott, the next big filmmaker, all as a result of this this is really a wonderful project. I just wish I was in that age range to have a go myself. Absolutely. You know, it's about encouraging young people to pick up the camera, pick up their tablet, um, pick up their smartphone, you know, do some um, hand-drawn animation, do the morph thing, whatever. They can do it. It's it's not difficult. The, tech, um, the resources are out there. You know, the information's out there. Come to our website. We, as Interfilm, the organisation, the charity that I work for, we're a UK-wide organisation, there's resources in there, there's information that they can get from there as well. And what is that website? The URL would be org forward slash space. I suspect if you just Google into film, into space, or, or look at the uh, Principia website, which is the uh, UK Space Agency's blog on the Principia mission, still don't like the word, um, you'll find it there. I should mention our partners, the Naked Scientists, are featuring Mars over the next month in their podcast, including how to get there and how to set up a space colony when you do. Now, for many space fans, the new Cosmonauts exhibition at the Science Museum in London will be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see a collection of objects, large and small, that encapsulates the impact and legacy of Russia on space travel. Well, if being at the exhibition launch wasn't enough, it was attended by the first woman in space who did that achievement back in 1963. Now in her early 80s, Valentina Tereshkova was a commanding presence. Interviewed on stage through a Russian interpreter by museum director Ian Blatchford, there was a Q&A afterwards. Now listen carefully for who got in there first. But Valentina began by confirming whether it was true that the engineers who designed her spacecraft... Vostok 6, remembered everything but a toothbrush. Unfortunately, this is a fact. (laughs) But I am very resourceful, as any woman would be. 
Но зубная щетка – это по сравнению с тем, что космический корабль был сориентирован на подъем орбиты, а не на спуск. Вот это серьезно, которую я обнаружила, доложила на Землю, и мы исправим. I did discover that mistake. I reported back to ground control, and we corrected it. And just... Был наказан инженер, но я попросила, чтобы его не наказывали. Королева Сергей Павловича. But I, and I did ask uh, the chief designer Karolyov not to punish the engineer because he was to be punished. А он с меня взял слово. Никогда об этом особенно журналистам не говорит. And he said, I want your word that you would never tell anyone about it. Particularly, especially journalists. So I've kept the secret for 30 years. А инженер, которого он хотел наказать, рассказал при всем народе об этом. Whereas the engineer himself Шабаров. told the whole world about it publicly. Вот я говорю, я 30 лет храню эту тайну, данное слово Сергею Павловичу Королеву, а он взял и сказал. And I say, well, I've given a word to Сергей Королёв that I would not spill the beans, and I've been keeping the secret for 30 years. And you go and tell the whole world about it. Так что космонавты умеют хранить тайну. Cosmonauts can keep the word. Both men and women. Particularly women. Но на высоте семи километров я катапультировалась и на парашюте я приземлялась и мой космический спускаемый аппарат. And at the height of seven kilometers, I catapulted out of my capsule and parachuted down to Earth. No, parachute более известный нам, поскольку я до полета была парашютисткой. And of course, I was very familiar with parachutes because I was a skydiver before my space flight. We do have a brief spell for questions. I will start with this lady here. Yes. Hi, Sue Nelson from Space Boffins. Delighted to see you both here. I would like to ask Valentina, considering that the recent intake of NASA astronauts was 50% men, 50% women, are you disappointed that the Russian Space Agency recently has had so few women cosmonauts considering your achievement, including one spell of 20 years without any women? Uh, но я хочу сказать, что сейчас в нашей стране создана корпорация космическая. И пришли молодые, красивые люди. Я думаю, что отношение к женщинам, специалистам, которые могут работать в составе экипажей, изменится. Вы слышите меня? Of course, I was disappointed. We were all disappointed. But of course, now we have the space corporation set up in Russia. And there are new talented, beautiful people who have come to work there. And I think the attitude to women will change. Do you hear me? <laughs> 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 
an unexpectedly entertaining and feisty Valentina Tereshkova, addressing the final warning, by the way, to the Russian dignitaries on the front row of the opening of the Cosmonauts exhibition. Well, afterwards, I met one of the curators of the exhibition, Emma Smith, in front of a spacecraft that I had never seen before. It's a lunar lander, LK3 lunar lander, and it's an engineering training model of the spacecraft that would have landed a single cosmonaut on the moon if the Russians had landed. And Alexei Leonov was to be that cosmonaut. Yes, he was. And it was quite incredible when um, he came to the museum to do the press launch. I was there. Oh, you were, yeah. I remember, it was incredible. (laughs) Now, you've got an enormous range of artefacts here, including Vostok 6, that Mm -hmm. Valentina Tereshkova went into space, became the first woman in space. But you've also got the very small, be it space embroidered patches, pressure Mm -hmm. trousers that look like from the wrong trousers, Wallace and Gromit, Matryoshka, Mm -hmm. those Russian Russian dolls. dolls. What for you is stands out for you in terms of the exhibition? My personal favourite object um, would actually be one of the letters that we have in section two, which is written by a 42-year-old collective farm worker, Maria Tofanova, and then she writes to Moscow Radio to express her desire, almost desperation, to go to space. She claims she's educated, she doesn't mind if she doesn't come back, but she just really wants to be sent to space. And I just find that very poignant. And for me, this exhibition isn't just about the technology and the spacecraft, but it's also about the, the common people. And there was a real national yearning to go to space, and it's about the cultural and social setting. How did you manage to get, physically get, some of this stuff here? Taking the Lunar Lander as an example, this is actually five metres tall and three tonnes. And at the very beginning of the project, we didn't actually think it would fit in the museum. But it actually took multiple trips to, to Russia, a meeting with the Russian engineers at the Moscow Aviation Institute, to actually figure out that it could be dismantled into smaller sections. Basically, um, a top, a middle, a bottom, and four legs. <laughs> um, and then physically transporting them. They were still quite large, and they, we couldn't fly them over in a normal aeroplane, so we had to bring them all by road which was a week-long journey by road and sea. With, with you <laughs> With me in the truck, it, yes, yes, yes. To load it, we had to use cranes just due to the sheer size and weight. And then a week later, we arrived in the UK and then had to unload, <laughs> which was the next challenge. And all the various components wouldn't actually fit in any of our lifts. So we had to hoist them up through the, the atrium at the front of the museum, up to the first floor. And then we had to use an external rigging company and engineers from Russia to reassemble it back together again. And that took another four days to get it to its full glory. <laughs> I like the um, mere space table you've got mm-hmm. as well, showing mm-hmm. the different types of food mm-hmm. that uh, the cosmonauts would eat. It, it was nice to see that they ate caviar yes, yeah. <laughs> in space. And you also have a rather beautiful, slightly art deco, like Sputnik samovar. Yes. Where did you get things like that from? That particular item came from the Memorial Museum of Cosmonautics, which is a, a whole museum in Moscow dedicated to the, the cosmonauts. Similar to what we wanted to achieve in this exhibition, they don't just chart the technology, but they, they collect a lot of the cultural items as well. So all the posters that you're seeing around the exhibition, this mass-produced Soviet posters, they're from that museum. Space is still got that excitement then mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for the museum guys. Definitely, I think so. The Russian side of the story is one that we, we haven't really told in our, our exploring, exploring Space Gallery, so we've got that new element, which I think is quite exciting. And if there was one reason for people to come here and see, I mean, most people listening to the podcast love space, so they will have pre-booked their tickets anyway. <laughs> but if you said there was one thing here that was worth the tickets alone, what would it be? 
I'd have to say Vostok 6, <laughs> without a doubt. I mean, just generally, we've got the greatest collection of Soviet spacecraft that has ever been seen outside Russia. Emma Smith from London's Science Museum, which, by the way, the exhibition, Cosmonauts, is absolutely fantastic. And there are pictures on our Facebook page. Have you been fantastic. yet, David? Uh, I'm going today. Yay! <laughs> and so think... we've got a good to-do list. Have we? <laughs> March and <laughs> <our> Cosmonauts <laughs> exhibition. Yeah. 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 Thanks very much to our guests, David Baker and Yen Yao. Space Boffins is supported by the Royal Astronomical Society and the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Do visit our Facebook page to see pictures from the Cosmonauts exhibition. Um, there's still time, and the links are also on the Facebook page, to uh, check out our programme with astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. This is for the Radio Everyone project. So Samantha Cristoforetti, ESA astronaut as DJ, and she is amazing. Uh, great music in there as well. There's ELO, there's Elvis, Joni Mitchell, Lou Reed. Um, there is some Coldplay, but once you're over that, it's great. Um, we're really pleased with it, so uh, do please listen. And uh, also I want to mention, and this is on the ESA website, but you also find it on our Facebook page, OMD, the uh, band, early 80s band, Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. From the Wirral, thank you very much. They are from the Wirral, yeah. yeah. Um, they have done, um, there's a version of uh, Electricity, which I think is the original version of Electricity, which I think was one of the early hits. They've got the music over the auroral displays from the International Space Station, and it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The combination of early 80s music and uh, space pictures, just fantastic. (laughs) Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Thanks for listening.